0: The following sermon is by Kenny Jones, Associate Pastor of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. I love that song. To give praise to the King this Sunday evening. Well, we are continuing our walk through the Ten Commandments tonight. And if you should have received an outline as you walked in here this morning, excuse me, this evening, and so, please grab one. Uh, they're out there in the uh, vestibule area so you can follow along with us tonight. But if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask if you will, flip over to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And tonight we are looking at verse 13. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Give you a second to, to flip over there. It's a short verse. Listen along with me in God's Word. Verse 13, You shall not murder. And that's it. Nothing else. Verse 13 again, You shall not murder. Exodus 20, verse 13. If you will, bow your heads with me, and let's go to the Lord in prayer as we, before we study His Word together. Bow your heads with me. Father, we are grateful for the grace You have given to us. Lord, all glory be to Christ. And Lord, may Everything we learn tonight, Lord, edify us through, Lord, your Spirit, Lord, teaching us, making us more in the image of your Son, Lord, and continuing to see how the Ten Commandments, Lord, apply to so many other areas of of our life. And, Lord, as we learn about how you tell us not to murder, Lord, continue to penetrate our hearts and our thoughts, Lord. And, Father, we love you, and it's in these things we pray. Amen. Well as you probably naturally do, when you think of murder, your first mindset is probably to think of some crime that has been committed. It doesn't take long to flip over the news or open the newspaper or social media to read about some sad case of someone being murdered, a man or a woman, or even children, elderly adults, someone being murdered at the hands of another. And it's a natural thought process really and most of the time what comes along with that if you are following a specific news article when you read about someone being killed or murdered naturally you are going to follow a court case that's going to go along with it that's most of the time what you see on on the news that someone so was murdered and then there's going to be a case at such and such date and you can see eventually down the road that that person will be either guilty or non-guilty or The words ring true when I hear murder sometimes when I hit a golf ball into my dad's office. I remember my sister saying, you are dead. And that did happen. True story. I I survived, obviously, but uh, that also does ring true for those who, uh, who had instances like that. But nonetheless, as we move into the sixth commandment tonight, you know, we have to also go back just for a moment and realize that the first four commandments, and we hit this last week, the first four commandments taught us about God, right? They taught us completely how to, in a nutshell, to honor God. Then we moved into the fifth commandment, which was to honor our father and our mother, which if you understand when we looked at it last week, the biblical understanding of how to respect and obey authority, it's going to naturally go into why we are called not to murder. Because if you understand authority, You're gonna understand that there's a natural consequence when someone does commit murder. The two go easily hand in hand. And in your by excuse me, in your outline, you can follow along with me already in the beginning. But for us to order to, to understand why God tells us not to murder, there is a natural response for us to see that life is obviously important. And so let's follow along in our outline together. But number one, For us to understand why we are called not to murder, we we have to understand the importance of life, why life is important. Life is important. I give you there in your outline under A, the Hebrew word for murder means to kill, to slay. It's premeditated killing of another person, the ending of life. Underneath there, under I, the Hebrew word makes this command even simpler, which is no murder can't get even smaller than that. We, in the English vernacular, I'm reading under the ESV, it says, you shall not murder. But in the Hebrew, when you read it in the book of Exodus, it says, no murder. Just simply put, no murder. And so, when we understand the Hebrew there, get, just get a little bit of history within Exodus 20, verse 13, then obviously your mind is going to, like I said earlier, it's sort of like Newton's you know, law. If there's, over here, we're told not to murder, and it helps us to see, even from this very beginning here, that life is obviously important. And so, this is where we see and be. Since murder is the ending of a person's life, then we must understand why life matters to God. And that's the important part we need to see from the very beginning. Why life matters to God. It does matter to God. And so therefore, we do have to go back to the beginning. And when I mean that, I put in, in your outline, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And we have to go back to the beginning because here in, in Genesis 1 and 2, this is where it all starts. This is where life begins. You can see in your outline or feel free, feel free excuse me to flip over to Genesis chapter 1, but I'll just read it to you. God said in chapter 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. We need to see a few important factors here, and again, we are going back to the to creation to help us to understand most importantly that the foundation of life begins in the Garden of Eden, and we have to see number one, <clears> the <throat> God is the author of creation, and I put a sh- I, I should have put the author of life, so put that off to the side. The God is the author of creation and life. As you can see, even in Genesis one, if we were to go back and look at the other days that god created we see plants and animals exist for the glory of god they have a purpose not only are they beautiful but they are used to cultivate the land conserve the land they are even called at times to eat both plant and animal though in all seriousness i think eggplant and broccoli are a result of the fall i don't think they were there in the beginning in perfection so especially eggplant Um, so just, just stating that. Don't eggplant. Yeah, don't make me eggplant parmesan or whatever. And I don't even like it. Um, just stating that fact. It's somewhere in the Hebrew. But, but then what we need to see within, in that point two there, if you go into looking at verse 27 in chapter one, I want you to see something just really mind-blowing. In verse 27, the Hebrew word for created, bara, means God formed. That's God formed. And shaped man. God formed and shaped man. Nothing else did. God here. God spoke man into being. So God formed and shaped man. The number three, and if you have your Bible open, you can flip there, or I put the Bible verse in here for you. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says this, then the Lord God made for, excuse me, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. When we see Genesis chapter 2, this idea of God breathing life into man, that, that word numa there in the, in the Hebrew, helps us to understand that at that moment, God gave man a soul. So number A there in Genesis 2-7, she says God giving man a soul. And the soul, or as we use sometimes as the heart, we often say, is what God cares for the most. It ties us to the eternal. So that's under A there, 3A. So it shows God giving man a soul, and God cares for the most, and what ties us to the eternal. Man cannot live without a soul. Body and soul must be tied together. And we see that. And the soul or the heart, as we say, and I believe those two can be synonymous at times, that's what God cares for. That's what it has to be cultivated and to grow. And most importantly, for that soul, that heart, to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That soul, that heart is also to be sanctified and to grow in, in grace. And then number four, later in chapter two, you don't have anything to fill out there, but later in chapter two, we can see the first act of murder is taking place with Cain and Abel. It shows us they are an immediate consequence. They are in a punishment of Cain. Oops, I jumped ahead of Cain, but let me jump back as well. Jumped ahead. I'm so excited to preach. I just got ahead of myself. But here, going back to B, this is number four. A part of God creating man. This also shows us why the mur- murder of Abel is important. But a part of God creating man, he gave man and woman roles, souls, and a mind to think and to reason, and a mind to think and to reason. Let me stop here for a second. I know I got ahead of myself, but before we go into Genesis 4, it begs us to stop and to really be at all of the Lord creating man and woman, isn't it? To think that God, out of his grace and purpose, created us, If you are alive today, and if you know somebody alive today that you love, that is a true gift from God. The the heart that is beating the air in our lungs truly is a gift from God. And we can see from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that it is not some evolution or cosmic bang or anything that created man and woman. It was God himself. And we need to understand that point, which, even though I jumped ahead, when we understand how God in his sovereign, wonderful just all-powerful mind created us that allows us to see why the importance of that first family in Genesis 4, when Abel was killed, why it was so important. Now, you can look down your outline, and I'm not going to read it again for you, but when you see Abel killed by his brother, what we realize, and you can write this off to the side, is that there is an immediate consequence and punishment against Cain. Not only is he a fugitive, but he's separated from God. He's called to work harder in the land. Remember, he's called to toil even further than his father Adam. He's separated from God. But the reason why Abel's death is important for us to understand, as we just learned in the creation account, is because God intended creation to be enjoyed, the bounty of creation to be enjoyed, which also means that man and woman... Brothers there, the first family, weren't to enjoy what God has given them. Yes, the fall had happened, but nonetheless, they were supposed to toil and to strive together as a family. And so we see when Abel was killed, there's an immediate consequence. But most importantly, what we see is separation takes place again. Separation takes place, which also helps us to see, even from the creation account, and as well as from the murder of Abel, We have to see that life is precious in the sight of God. Life matters to God. Even in those first four chapters, that's very important for us to see, as well as for us to understand in light of the sixth commandment, when God tells us not to murder. I'm not going to read all of it here, but I put a quote in here from a Dutch um, commentator. It's on the top of page two there for you. His name is Jay Duma, but he says, Among all God's creatures, people are unique. They represent God on Earth. God wants to live in them and have His own power radiate through them in this world. Man was destined to be God's temple. He is in position to fulfill an exalted task because he received the gifts of understanding and volition. I'm just go ahead and read the rest of it. These extraordinary gifts elevate him above the animal and enable him to exercise dominion over God's creation. It's very important for us to see. If you go further on to Genesis, we also see the importance of life being held up high in the eyes of God, and it should be in the eyes of man as well. Because when you go on to verse, in chapter 9, verse 6, it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood has been shed and shall be shed. For the, in the image of a God, this man was made, or he made man, as another version says. It's important for us to understand that. The image of God, that's a key word for us to understand. That's in your outline as well, under three. When murder has taken place, the image of God is effaced. And that's important for us to realize. And we can't skirt around this idea. Because what murder shows, since we understand now where life began, in the Garden of Eden, and since God is the author of life, what we're ultimately doing is offending and hurting God's creation, but also, of course, to sin against a holy God. That's what, that's what happens and takes place when we break the sixth commandment. And so we can, we can, of course, see from other biblical accounts that God takes murder very serious. Probably one of the more famous accounts, not only from Cain and Abel, but of course when we go to First Samuel, God did not allow David skirt around or get by when the murder of Uriah took place, did he? When Nathan confronted him, he said, Remember that hypothetical situation? He came and then he said, You are that man. Immediately, a consequence took place. A child died. Right? There was separation. Sin had to be confronted against. And we can see time and time again of many other murders that have taken place in, in the Bible, and there is always consequence. It's a sin against the Holy God, and it's a sin against humanity. Which, Alin, as this is in your outline under C, because we have to realize that God alone has control over life and death. God alone has control over life and death. So, which then asks and begs the question <clears throat> since now we know a lot why life is important, then we have to understand naturally in our thought process what is the goal of life, right? It's a natural tendency in, in our thought process. Since life is important, life matters to God, and life should matter to us, then that should help us naturally to go. Okay, Kenny, then why? What's the goal? What's the purpose of life? If the students were here, and that's when I when I say students, the middle and high school students, they're learning the Westminster Shorter Catechism on Sunday mornings. They are getting deep Bible from uh, Pastor Grant. In question one, I put it in here for you. This is a great example of what is the goal for the Christian life. Question one says this, this is in your outline. What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I give you there two supporting Bible verses that are 1 Corinthians and Romans chapter 11. But what we have to see here is since God gave life, we have to live it for a purpose and that is for to live it for the glory and the praise of his great name. Now. Since we know that, that's number one, we are called to live for his glory, that should also help us to realize a very important point. Since the purpose is to live for his glory, we also have to again go back to another beginning. This allows us to see the purpose of life is to live for his glory because we have to also understand it in light of the prologue. And the prologue, if you remember with me, is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to read it here briefly because the prologue allows us to understand the Ten Commandments in a better fashion. And I'm going I'm to read it again. And we've been going back here the last couple of weeks as well, and it says this, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let me read that again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The prologue, helps us to realize a major point for the people of Israel. God allowed their life to continue. And what do I mean by that? I mean that twofold. Number one, you may remember in Exodus chapter 1, you remember when the Pharaoh told for the Hebrew boys to be killed? But the midwives allowed, or basically lied, and said, hey, listen, these, these women are just too fast for us to get to. They were being obedient to God's word that life should continue. That's one that's one piece of evidence for God continuing the life, the excuse me, the lives of the people of Israel. But also what we have to understand from the prologue is this. It's that since God delivered them from Pharaoh, from slavery, their actual Exodus account, their lives that we are seeing taking place here in the context of Exodus chapter 20 is another evidence of God's grace and mercy. They are alive, is another way of saying it. And that's what we see here. God could have kept him in Egypt, but he didn't. He allowed the exodus to take place to flee Egypt, which then allows us to go back to that word we have been hitting a lot over the last couple of weeks, which should allow us to realize that the people of Israel are called to remember. And to remember is not necessarily just a mental fact that you, they are recalling, but remembering is an action. And the action then for the people of Israel in this context was not to commit murder because they have been delivered from slavery. Their lives have been saved. They should know after countless... If you read the Exodus account, of course, we can go back to Exodus 14, which is a great example of when Moses split the Red Sea, right? God allowed them to live, to continue on to the promised land, which is another example of God's grace and mercy. So the people should be living in full praise and adoration of the king which then, as we're in this context, should help them to, pry, to honor life and to respect life and not to commit murder. You follow me when I mean that? Which then allows us to see, <clears throat> number two here, excuse me, see, Israel's deliverance from Egypt show that their life does not end, but continues by the grace and the mercy of God. And then number two here, it should help us also as Christians to see that your life matters to God. Your life matters to God. And especially being reconciled to Him by His Son Jesus. And this should call us to remember, that's that second one, and give God praise. And I put in there Psalm one eighteen, seventeen, which says this, I shall not die but live, declares the works of the Lord. It is an amazing gift. From God, that we have life, isn't it? It's an amazing gift from our Lord that we have life. And we understand it on this side of the cross that we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness, that we have been delivered, like Russ said, from the wrath of God, all because of the blood of Christ. We should live our life for the praise and the glory of King Jesus. That's the purpose of our life, which then allows us to to realize something. For the last few minutes, we have been understanding not only the beginning of life, the history of it, authenticity, the meaning of it, and all the points that we have been discussing help us to see how life matters to God. And we should very much see, even with humanity, no matter who our eyes come into a contact with, right? We see anybody in the street, our neighbors, our loved ones, our family, that life matters to God. We should see that. But we also have to understand this, and this is where we're moving into number three here. When we are understanding, even like I said, the history of this idea of life, but also when we look back at the Hebrew word for murder, like I said, most of the time when we think of murder, we think of crime and a punishment taking place. But when we understand murder here, we also don't need to see that this word here, the rakasha here, does not mean that it also has to do with time of war and wartime or capital punishment. That's not what we're seeing here. When we see this word murder here, it is the killing and the taking of life without just cause. For us Christians, it's when the abandonment of, the, of acknowledging the image of God and the life giver. Right. That's another way for us to understand murder. But as you know, as Christians, there are modes of murder in our time. And a lot of times when we look at it, a lot of us in this room have probably asked or maybe online have thought for a second, you know, Kenny, what do you think of of abortion? What do you think of with war? What do you think of with capital punishment, right? That's so often as the Christians, people ask us those type of questions. And I think when we are in that moment of someone asking us, or even when we are processing and reading the news, right, and we th- and we know of you know uh, uh, countries going to war, or we know somebody serving in the military going off to fight for our country, or we learn about an abortion taking place, and we and we see it on the news of, uh, for example, the law in Texas of abolishing abortion in that state, or or so forth. So often, I think we can really boil down to four different questions that so often hit us as Christians, and it's really within these different modes of murder or the taking of one's life, or boiled down to four different ones. That's war, suicide, abortion, and involuntary manslaughter, or negligent homicide is another way of saying that word. And of course, we can discuss these really ad nauseum, of course. But I want us to go through just a just a few briefly for us to understand in this context of murder, because this would just give us better insight with this insight with the sixth commandment. Number one, with war. In the early days of the Bible, even in the times um, of Noah, we begin to see envy and strife take place within people. You can see just out of the gates of Noah, out of Genesis chapter six, that it doesn't take long for people to want to fight and to go to war and to have battles. Even in the very beginning of the book in Genesis, we see even in our own world history, there are many, many different reasons why countries go to war. Whether it's power or wealth or land or whatever the case may be, right? There are di- different reasons why we see people going to, war, or excuse me, countries going to war, but as a Christian, when we are looking and reading about it in the news especially, and we, th- and we even know maybe somebody in uh, the military, maybe your parents or, or siblings are in the military or served our country faithfully, it's a great question to ask. What about war? There is a term that Christians have used for many years to think about war biblically, and this is in your outline. It's called the just war theory. The just war theory. And this theory has helped Christians for the ages to go back to the Bible to see if this war is just or not to fight. And I'm going to give you two points here for us to understand. Number one, just war theory acknowledges that all wars, all war is the result of evil. It's the result of evil. When we see the fall of man happen in Genesis chapter 3, we see hostility, sin, anger, take place. The covenant of power and land and wealth, like I said earlier, has cultivated and been the start of many wars. But we even see in the Bible, look at the Canaanites, for example. Even though it was a divinely instituted conflict against Canaan, it was a result from sin, right? And we can see from the Canaanites, if it hadn't been their sin, God would not have need to judge their wickedness. And that's a clear example we see from scripture. But even when, even further in your outline we can see fighting in a war is not necessarily evil we can understand from exodus chapter 22 verses 2 through 3 we are given the right to self defense but we can also see and i put it in here in romans 13 1 through 7 and i'm not going to read all of it here but as we know we see that it says here if you do wrong be afraid this is in romans 13 for he does not bre- Bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. For this, it goes further on, you also must pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to very thing. Pay what is owed, tax to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So first of all, do not go to war with the IRS. It's just a joke. Um, some of us might want to sometimes. But, um, but all jokes aside, we can see here that from Romans 13, this is in your outline, that God gives the power to the government to conduct war, not individuals. God gives the power to government to conduct war, not individuals. But we also have to see that going to war can be for a whole host of reasons. But we have to see that war, according to the just war theory, should only be started after all peaceful attempts have been made. And I get that from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 15. And listen, we could spend hours on war. We really could. Uh, The just war theory is very complex. In fact, there are many, I can remember one of my similar professors, Dr. Dan Heimbach, was really the subject matter expert and the just war theory as he worked on President George H.W. Bush's staff and discussed these types of things um, in a uh, public policy type of setting. So listen, I know that we can talk a lot about war and its and its implications and its consequences, but I just wanted to give you just a brief snippet because war is something that we have to realize is a real thing. And we have to understand that what do we know? Loved ones or friends that serve in the military, the question will come up. What about this war? Think about the Reformation, right? Think about martyrs and so forth. Are good questions to ask if we are a Christian and for as well as for us to study when we are thinking about the Sixth Commandment. Number two, number two is suicide. This is in your outline. <clears throat> suicide is the voluntary taking of one's life. Very sadly, the statistics of suicide are not good. It's a reality. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the US for all ages. As I was doing some research over the last couple of weeks, I read from a website, suicide prevention website, that it's actually higher in men. And there has been a rise recently in the ages of boys from 10 to 14. Can you imagine that? 10 to 14. That's where we see the rise in suicide. And the statistics, and I'm not going to read them all, get worse for other demographics and as well as for other parts and cultures of the world. And they get even worse in the military, in the military of all places. It says in your outline, the number one we have to understand with suicide, that the Bible condemns suicide. The Bible condemns suicide. There are six men in the Bible, and i list them there for you, that committed suicide. And the Bible says all of them committed an act of sin. There's no excuse for it. But one of the realities of suicide that we have to understand, and this is clear, Whether you read statistics or you know somebody, so often when we read about it, and I'll get to euthanasia here in a second, when we realize someone has committed suicide, so often, like the statistics show us, there is loneliness and depression going right alongside of it. It's just a reality. Loneliness was the, when I was doing statistics, out of the seven websites I read, and out of the over 35 statistics I read, 24 of them had the word lonely or loneliness in them. When you begin to get into the understanding of it all. And I want to say this, just as a pastoral plea, as a moment of love, and we'll get to euthanasia here in a second. But the reality that suicide carries is this. There are people struggling in this world with loneliness, depression, lack of no hope, fear, whatever the case may be. And I, and I'm, I just want to say this, not for myself, but from, the, from, from God's Word. We need to show the hope of Jesus to them. Because the reality is this. Probably some of you in this room or watching online know somebody who has committed suicide you know somebody who has struggled with depression or hard times whatever the case may be but we have to i mean and i'm saying this from from my heart as a lot of you know my sister took her own life the reality is this we have to give hope and the hope only comes through jesus christ and jesus alone because it's through christ where we can see hope we can see refuge we can see love we can see deliverance And we can see forgiveness and a path to get out of that. To get out of loneliness. And to get out of fear. And to get out of, you know, the suicidal thoughts that someone may have. And it's a reality we live in. And so I say this from a heart of love as a pastor, but also a brother who misses his sister that the truth of suicide is real. And when you look at these statistics, it's just heartbreaking, especially especially on young people, especially kids, and I'm saying kids, younger than 17 years old. The statistics just get even worse. And I'm not going to go any further, but it's the hope of Christ, the love of Christ that will deliver. Never forget that. Never forget that when someone is dealing with suicidal thoughts or tendencies, depression, give them Christ and get help. Get help immediately if you know somebody or you or yourself. Which we need to go back to you looking at euthanasia briefly. And that's suicide with the help of another. Listen, we have seen the rise over the last two decades, the rise of physician assistant suicide. You probably know of the story of Dr. Kevorkian, of course, that happened back um, in the the late 90s and early 80s, or late 80s, excuse me. We can see somewhere, as one uh, historian said with euthanasia, somewhere the, the idea became of the valuing of someone's life, and that value was then put into the hands of someone else, and that person helps them commit suicide. It's a reality we live in. And I, again, we can go on a lot more on these uh, two topics with suicide and uh, euthanasia, but we have to see this is sin and this is wrong. All right, number three, abortion, abortion. The Bible affirms that life happens in the womb. The life happens in the womb. In the moment of conception, life has happened. It is then when it happens, It's to be protected, prayed for, cultivated when we see that take place. I put in here two Bible verses for you to have. Psalm 129 verses 13 through 14, and then in Job 10 verses 8 through 12. If you don't know these, these are wonderful verses not only to study, but also when someone comes to you and asks the question, what do you think about uh, abortion? These are two verses I go to uh, constantly when someone asks me that question, but we have to see that the Bible affirms that life takes place in the womb, but also we can see that the church for centuries has affirmed that life takes place in the womb, and I put in here a quote from John Calvin, and I'm going to read it to you. the he says, for the, and this is in the Latin for fetus, that's what that word there is. It says, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, it is already a human being, homo, and it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of life, which has not been yet to enjoy. It seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field because of a man's house and his place of most secure refuge. It ought surely be deemed more atrocious to destroy to destroy a, again, that's in Latin, a fetus, in the womb before it has come to light to come to light so we have to see that life happens in the womb and when abortion takes place it is a sin against the imago dei into god himself number three excuse me number four here is negligent homicide or involuntary manslaughter the killing of of a person involuntarily or by accident listen this happens And here's a two-fold explanation for this, and I'll be quick. Number one, the Bible does provide legal sanctions if this does happen. I put in here a Bible verse for you in Deuteronomy chapter 19, and that is when they give an example. If you were out in a field and then axe head falls off and it kills somebody, you have the right to run to the altar or a city of refuge. But what you always see behind that is if that um, involuntary manslaughter takes place, you can run to it, you won't be put to death, but there is always a case or a trial to be had, right? Figure out what happened out there. For example, when you look at Deuteronomy 19 in the field, why did that ax head fall off, for example? And so, just for example, I'm going to pick on you. So they have to ask Jeff what happened in that field. And so they go through in the Old Testament. Was it on purpose or was it not? And we can see even here in today, today's laws, that I was just reading a case here recently. There was a woman down in Florida that uh, hit somebody with her car, ended their life, and through it was a nine-month trial. But at the end of it, she was found not guilty because of uh, technology and a number, a number of other different cases, and she was not found not guilty. She was able to live her, you know, to live with that state because this, the, the the justice system found her not guilty. And so we have to understand when we look at this idea of murder, this is what it's also falling in line with. but Not in line with, but we have to understand when we look at murder, this Hebrew word, it's premeditated. That's what we have to understand. But I put these four points in here for you to uh, also to be able to know your Bible as well as the day will come. Someone's going to ask you, right? Jim, what's your thought on the war? What's your thought on even past wars? And so we have to go to scripture and scripture alone to be able to defend these different types of understand this understandings. When we were looking at the sixth commandment and the ending of life, which then allows us to go to number four, getting to the heart of the matter. If you will, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. Flip over there with me. In Matthew chapter 5, this is Jesus teaching his disciples in the Sermon of the Mount. And I put in your outline just verses 21 through 22, and you can write off to the side 21 through 26 if you would like. But in the Sermon of the Mount, another way of understanding the Sermon of the Mount is kingdom ethic, kingdom living. It is the Ten Commandments applied. That's another way for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus teaching his disciples how your kingdom living is supposed to be on this earth. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is, another way of understanding it. And so when we see in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is addressing the sixth commandment here. And I'm going to read, starting in verse 21 here, because Jesus is getting to the heart of the sixth commandment. Listen along with me in verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those who have old, you should not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you were offering your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I'll stop there. My grandmother legitimately thought the word fool was a cuss word because of the Bible. Seriously, she thought fool was a cuss word. And, uh, and I can remember she would quickly go back to Matthew chapter 5. Um, I never heard her say it, of course, to anybody, but in reality, what we see within Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 5 is this. When Jesus says, you have heard that what is said of old, he's meaning the rabbinic teaching. The disciples literally would have known, when you hear do not murder, they probably would have left it just at the physical act of taking another person's life, and that's where they would have stopped, right? They would have just stopped there. But Jesus is wanting us to see something far more important within the sixth command. Because the commandment not only forbids, and this is in your outline, the outward act, but also every thought and word that seeks to destroy a man's life. That's what we see here. And I put that in your outline for you. That the commandment not only forbids the outward act, but also every thought and word that seeks to destroy a man's life. Pretty startling to think about, isn't it? We think about anger towards a brother or a sister, seeking to destroy a man's life. So what we see here in Matthew chapter 5 is, again, and I know I've said it a number of times, but relationships matter. People matter to God. Life matters to God. God. When you think about Matthew chapter 5, you have to naturally go to James chapter 3. Because remember when James says, even when you curse a brother or a sister, you are essentially committing an act of murder. When you are cursing someone down, you are cutting them down with their words. I put in here the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 105 and 106, because they help us to understand the sixth commandment, especially in light of understanding it through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, In question 105, what does God require? Yes, I did keep it in the King James, doth. God require in the sixth commandment, answer is this, that neither in thoughts nor words or gestures, much less deeds, dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor, or by myself or by another, that I laid aside all desire of revenge, that I might not self or willfully expose myself to any danger. Question 106, but does this commandment seem only to speak of murder? In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he absorbs the causes thereof of any such envy, hatred, anger, or desire of revenge, and that he accounts all of these of murder. The reality is this. The Bible is clear in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as in 1 John 3:15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Listen, the reality of when we harbor anger when we hold a grudge towards one another, we are breaking the sixth commandment. Because that's where true murder starts, isn't it? It all starts right here. When we allow a grudge, anger towards a brother or a sister take place, and we allow it to fester, what we don't realize is taking place, and it's, it's beginning to weigh down on our heart and our conscience, right? And then we can quickly begin to see that if we let it just sit there and just cook and brew for a time, and over time, it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gnaws on us, whether we realize it or not. And then, God forbid, it can, of course, take itself out on a physical expression, as we see in Scripture, but also what it can do is weigh on our soul, as we discussed earlier. It can weigh heavy on us. And the reality is this. A lot of times we think to ourselves, Kenny, no one knows I'm holding a grudge against my dad or my mom or a sibling or a friend. That's just me, right? It's, but what we don't understand is that even though we don't think no one is seeing it, you remember we live before an audience of one. And God sees it. And when we are holding anger or strife or a grudge against somebody, we are again sitting to a holy God. And whether we realize it or not, that person is going to understand it in some way, shape, or form. It's like the great quote of Charles Stanley. It says this, you reap what you sow, more than you sow, and later than you sow. And that's exactly what happens when we are angry with a brother or a sister. It begins to fester and to brew in our hearts. I put in here a quote for you from Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, Jesus does not mean that it makes no difference whether we gossip or stab, but he does mean that both activities reveal the same animosity of the heart to our neighbors. So therefore, we have to be watchful how we are treating one another. We have to be watchful when we are treating one another. So Kenny, what are we gonna do? You gotta give me some hope. Gotta give me a bone here, right? You gotta throw out a line. Of course there is. Listen, the reality is this. Like I said earlier in regards to suicide, if you are struggling with anger, and this is just me coming to you as a fellow brother in Christ, if you're struggling with anger, if you have a grudge against somebody, there is something deep within your heart, whether you're here in person or watching online, ladies and gentlemen, the reality is this. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can, one, go to that brother and sister and reconcile with them. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 5. Go to them quickly. Listen, we know plenty of people in our lives who have been angry at, a, for example, a father or a mother or a friend, right? And that person, what happens? They pass away. You don't want to live with regret. You don't want to live with that anger for the rest of your days. We don't want to do that. As it says in Matthew chapter 5, go to them, leave your gift, and first be reconciled, and then come and offer it before the altar. That's the same language you see when we come to the Lord's table here at Capitol once a month. Grant says often, if you have something against someone, right? don't take. Don't take the bread and the cup. Go and seek forgiveness first. That's what we have to do. But we also have to realize this, that if you are struggling with anger, you have a grudge against somebody. Take much hope, take much hope in the power of the gospel and and through our King Jesus, because through Jesus, he was the perfect obedience to the sixth commandment. And you're probably asking me, how did he do this? It's because he died a criminal's death and yet forgave the ones who put him on the cross, didn't he? In Luke chapter 23, he forgave the ones who put him on the cross and so if you have something going on in your heart if you have hate against a brother or a sister ask the Lord's for forgiveness and if you need to go to him go to her and ask for their forgiveness as well and then also I'll, I close with this I put that Romans 13 passage in there for us to see practical application of how to obey the sixth commandment romans 13 says this oh no oh no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments you should not commit adultery you should not murder you should not steal you should not covet and any other commandment are summed up in this word You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. There it is. We love our neighbor. We we are following again another command in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies. You have said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter seven: "So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's how we're supposed to treat one another. Yes, it can be hard. People can be prickly, right? Right? It's like the old Jerry Clower, y'all know him, the old Southern comedian used to say, "He makes the, the hair on my neck stand up." <laughs> right? You get so angry at somebody, right? But the reality is this. When we are loving our neighbor as ourself, we're going to be obedient and not break the sixth commandment. And that's our hope. That's where our strength will come from. Well, I want to end with this. I'll end with this. You know, closing with a, with a benediction, so to speak. But when we think about the Ten Commandments, as we have been studying the last couple of weeks, you know you have realized that the Ten Commandments really do are deeper than we realized. They creep into other areas of our lives, whether we realize it or not. They expose a whole host of sins and duties that we are called to obey according to God's Word. And as I was studying the Sixth Commandment, what I realized that we don't think about a lot is truly being angry towards one another. And yes, the physical act of taking one's life is very egregious, and we see it all the time in the news, all the time. People being murdered over um, different circumstances, of course. But in this day and age, how we love one another truly is a foreign thing to this world, isn't it? It really is. How we treat one another with respect, how we honor life and, and, and value one another, value our brothers and sisters in Christ, but even when we value other people in this world. And one of, and I'll say this as a point of closing that I wanted to leave leave with, is when we are trying to obey the Sixth Commandment and looking at it through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, when we are loving our neighbor, when we are Seeing them as in the imago day as an image of God. I leave with this, and Russ mentioned this, this morning. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. You catch that? Does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not insist on in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And it does not rejoice in wrongdoing let me stop there. All of those characteristics are so often tied to when we are going to break the sixth commandment, aren't they? Envy, we're irritable, we're resentful, we insist on our way, not their way. It's not showing preference to one another, right? And then it goes on, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And I'll stop there. And that is Our closing word tonight for that is how we are to obey the sixth commandment to love our neighbors and to see of course the perfect example of love through christ christ alone bear your heads with me in prayer eternal lord and heavenly father we thank you for this evening as we have opened up your word and discussed the sixth commandment father we thank you for your word and lord how you teach us how to honor life and to help us to see that you are the author of life and the author of creation. And Lord, how truly life is a gift. And Lord, from the womb to uh, our elderly brothers and sisters, Lord, life matters. And you are control over life and death. And so I just pray, Father, that as we go about our days and we ask that you will help your, uh, the teaching of your word tonight to apply it on our hearts and our minds And we pray, Father, that you would help us to, Lord, to fulfill, see that we can fill the law through through love. And Lord, we can be obedient to the sixth commandment by loving our neighbor. And Lord, we live in a day, like our friend uh, Carrie said and Jeff said, Lord, that people are hurt, depressed, people are being bullied. And Lord, I just pray that that you allow, Lord, your gospel message to get to those people. And Lord, for them to see that they have hope and refuge all because of Christ. So Lord, um, continue to teach us and protect us as we go out this day. And Lord, we pray that you will also protect us as we go into this week of Thanksgiving. Continue to protect all of us in this room if we are traveling or I'm going to go see friends or family. And Lord, help us to always remember that we have so much to be thankful for because of Christ. So we pray these things always in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at CapitalCommunityChurch.com.